Hi, I'm Julie Bindle. And this episode, I'm talking to Cathy Boardman, a proud, working-class, northern, lesbian, feminist, just the type of woman I love to get together with. But Cathy lost her job. A job she loved, that she'd been doing on a freelance basis for five years and then was taken on as a staff member at a music academy based in Manchester. I was called in for a meeting with the college principal who wanted to talk about my perceived trans-exclusion views and mentioned a group of students who were, his words, that they're out to get me and I'm, I'm in danger. Um, this is just before Christmas, I'm scared. And yeah, I'm in a private rented house. I could feasibly, I could be homeless in three months and have my kids taken off me. She had always had a good relationship with her students and then in a discussion, which was part of the course she was teaching, cultural studies, on drag or woman face, as many of us feminists call it, she was then accused of transphobia and homophobia. And you'll hear the story about how this built up and escalated. But effectively, Cathy has been let go under the guise that she failed to complete, successfully complete her probationary period, which she's disputing. And she's going to dispute it in court. She's taking a sex discrimination case. She's also relying on the Forstata judgment that her so-called gender critical beliefs are perfectly valid and that she's entitled to express them. One of the most shocking uh, things about this, apart from the fact that a single mother has lost her job for doing absolutely nothing wrong, for in fact trying to engage her students critically in an important cultural issue, is the way that she was accused of transphobia when she refused to allow a discussion about male violence following the brutal rape and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Metropolitan Police officer into a discussion about trans women and violence towards them. Have a listen. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Cathy, your background, who you are, that kind of thing. I went to university as a mature student um, and I did a social anthropology degree, which I absolutely loved, um, and ended up getting my absolute what I thought was my dream job teaching um, cultural studies on a music degree course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, a, a lesbian, a single mom, um, and I was super, super happy with this job um, because, well, it, it combines my love of nerdily thinking about society and the world um, with my love of music and events and popular culture so it seemed to top um i fell foul no doubt anyone who hasn't heard of my case can predict by now <laughs> um what happened um which is that um i had a a hate campaign run against me by a group of students um i think it's important to stress that this was a really small group of students um, who objected to me um, in one lecture stating that biological sex, defining biological sex and then defining what gender is and using those two terms um, differently. Um, and the, the real um, nasty stuff started after 
I used a sex and gender lecture for first year students in which we were supposed to talk about things that were happening in, in the news, topical things, um, to talk about violence against women uh, because it was the week of the Sarah Everard vigil. Um, it was International Women's Day, uh, or the day after International Women's Day, where Jess Phillips reads out the, the list of um, women who've been murdered by men in that year. Um, and there was a new hashtag trending, you know, um, enough is enough. And so it was the news story of the week. And so I didn't think it was too controversial to talk about it. Um, however, there was um, some dissatisfaction, should we say, by um, two or three students, as far as I'm aware, uh, that we didn't talk about trans issues in this one hour um, that we had. What did they actually say to you, Cathy, at the time? Do you remember what the intervention was, what, what words they used? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, because it was over the pandemic and this was all on Zoom, um, everything is recorded. So a student asked um, why we weren't talking about trans issues. Um, and I said, just quite simply, we only have one hour. Um, this is the story of the week. I think that it's really important to talk about this issue. Um, it's relevant to the music industry because it affects the nighttime economy, um, you know, whether women feel safe going to gigs. Um, we also obviously looked at representation of people working within the music industry, um, which you won't be surprised is um, favourable to males. Um, and yeah, I just said, we just haven't got time to do that. Um, I don't have time in an hour to do the whole um, topic of women's rights and to talk about transgender politics as well. Um, I did say, um, you know, the seminars were going to be an hour and a half, even though it's only an hour lecture, in my view, the wrong way around, but that's not the point. Um, please bring any ideas or issues you have to the seminars. This is the time for discussion. Also, if you want to write about transgender um, in your essays, do it, read, do some reading. Um, and come to tutorials, get a one-on-one -on -one tutorial, either with me or with any lecturer you feel comfortable with. Um, it's a really important thing that's happening in, in culture at the moment. So, yeah, do some research and write about it. So it sounds like you were very amenable to um, the students' requests. You, were, you heard yeah. them, you listened to them, you responded oh. in, sounds to me like a fair and reasonable way. Well, I thought it was a fair and reasonable way as well, you know, um, as, as I'm sure many lecturers or people who are interested in sort of um, education or even you know people who do podcasts and stuff would recognise, you have to decide what it is you're going to talk about in a short amount of time. You can't do everything. And then to say to, to signpost to people to how to find out more, it just seems completely reasonable to me. That was the first time I taught the cultural type modules in the first year because the courses were changing, but I had a second year module that was um, essentially social history and popular music, 1900 to 1975. Um, and then the third year one is cultural theory um, and popular music from 1976 onwards. So where in the second year one, we look at 
race and racism, you know, in the third year we start to look at post-colonialism, where we look at sex and gender, in the third year we look at feminism, instead of class we look at Marxism, you know, so it, it's just like a step up um, theory-wise. Um, and there were predictable, it I could predict that there would be some complaints after looking at either sex and gender or feminism. I could predict that there would be some complaints after looking at um, race and racism. Um, I was accused of being racist against white people. How did they? How did they manage to to um, throw that one at you? Well, I mean, this is a podcast. I will tell people I am white. Um, I, it's some. People. And again, it's a really small number of people um, feel personally got at when we talk about systemic issues. So um, I don't, I've been talking about this with somebody else actually this morning. I don't think it is um, a terrible thing to say that white people benefit from colonialism and racism, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that all white people are terrible and have been doing the colonizing themselves, mm -hmm. right? You know, white people as a group um, have benefited from this. Um, men as a sex class benefit from um, patriarchy. It doesn't mean that all men are terrible. It doesn't mean all white people are terrible, but they, some people take it really personally. Mm. And I think that's a shame. Um, and I think that it is one of the things that shuts down debate and shuts down the ability to change things. Well, before we move on to what then happened as a result of you having yeah. the absolute brass neck to uh, <laughs> to refuse to uh, meet the demands oh. of students um, in that unreasonable way, Let, let's just have a look at what's happened in the academy in higher education in terms of, of thought crime and the way that debate has been shut down. I mean, I, I for, just to bring a personal note into this, I discovered recently that um, a trigger warning sticker had been put on um, two of my books at Oxford University. Um, neither books were anything to do with the trans issue. One was on the global sex trade the other was on lesbian and gay culture. Trigger warnings is something I'm fascinated by and I have a theory on it and I'd love to talk about that in a few minutes, but this idea of what is safe and what's unsafe. So you're talking about atrocities that have happened globally to mainly women and girls. And yet the terrible thing that might happen to people reading it is to know that you believe that women and girls absolutely exist right. As a sex class. I could not have put that better myself. That's this is bonkers. exactly absolute muppetry that has now invaded so-called learning, and and yet some topics are perfectly debatable as far as the, in my view, spoilt, um, overprivileged students are concerned. They now dictate the entire landscape, but we can get onto onto that in a little bit, but. Some topics are fine to talk about as far as those particular, that particular subset of students think. But there are some issues that we are not allowed to explore. So just mm -hmm. tell me about that from your experience. Well, um, 
I, I just think it's fascinating, actually. And you know, I was I was told a couple of times that I, I should have trigger warnings on my on some of the lectures. And and the one time I did, well, not the one time I did, one time that I did, um, it was um, when we were talking about feminism in a feminism and how that relates to um, popular music and popular culture. And we looked at Gail Dines. Um, I mean, I set one of the chapters for her book, Pornland, as the reading, um, the chapter visible or invisible, which I find really interesting. And in, in that she talks about how if, she talks about the pornification of culture and how images from porn um, and violent pornography have seeped down into um, what we just kind of expect to see in popular culture, um, images and, and music as well. Um, and how we then teenage girls are kind of expected to portray themselves in this way and to act in this way um, and to you know behave in ways that are kind of porn acceptable um, and but she also says that that is how a girl becomes visible and so to blame girls for doing this is a complete misreading that this is a societal thing and you can't ask teenage girls to render themselves invisible by telling them that they shouldn't behave like this or present themselves like this so I like it because it it's an analysis of the inequality it's an analysis of how we get to this state but it takes the blame off the teenage girls who are victim of it right um yeah. now I know that a lot of the students are not going to do the reading and so um, towards the end of the lecture, we watch her TED talk. The whole, it's not the whole lecture is not about this, but you know, we watch her TED talk, which is growing up in a pornified culture, um, which I highly recommend. Um, and I tell people at the beginning, or because people have said it was difficult before, I've told people at the beginning, so we're gonna watch a video about pornography and its effects. Um, if you wanna leave before that happens, then you can. Um, and I said, you don't even have to say, you know, it's because I'm going to be triggered by this. You just tell me you've got a bus to catch or just, just leave, it's fine. And a student came to me at the end and said, there's no point in giving trigger warnings on the day. What? So, okay, so before, before I actually react to that properly, just to say, um, totally agree with you about Pornland. I interviewed Gail Dines years ago when the book first came out in the UK. And she um, was kind enough to do... A podcast episode with me on Substack, uh -huh. and anyone that wants to listen to Gail talking about her work, it was posted on the thirteenth of July. So, totally agree with you. But you're supposed to actually give a trigger warning some time in advance, in, so they can prepare themselves to hear yeah. about reality. And I'd, somebody had asked me that at the beginning of the year, and I said, "Well, I don't, I can't, I don't know what it will trigger different people." But if you have a look at you know, the content for each week, you will see what kind of things we're going to talk about, you know, do the reading. Um, and I, I, I just found it really difficult because I think it's really important that we talk about things like, um, like sex inequality, like abuse, like, like rape, like the harms of pornography. I do think it's really important that we talk about that and it's not comfortable. It's not supposed to be comfortable. Now, in the past, what appeared to have happened is after I'd talked about pornography, about eight weeks later, a couple of boys would complain. Um, and I did think that that was possibly because they were watching 
pornography and um, had, had thoughts that they didn't want to have. Um, and it had taken a while for that to filter through. Um, and so I had, you know, I'd started talking about it at the beginning and then I was told that you can't talk about it at the beginning. And there's a, a couple of times that we've talked about this kind of trigger warning. And I was trying to get my head around it because when students tell me that they want trigger warnings, my response is, can you please tell me about trigger warnings? Like, what is it you expect? I, I'm really fascinated to hear um, different perspectives on it. Um, and I came to the um, to the conclusion, or my theory on it, if it is, um, what I call an assertive vulnerability, um, which I kind of, but as soon as I caught on that phrase, assertive vulnerability, just thought, how cool and badass is that, right? It's pretty um, good. Yeah, it is. Good. it's it's girl, young women, mainly young women who are saying, this makes me feel bad and I don't like it, right? And now I'm I'm from the 90s, you know, I was a teenager um, and a young woman in the late 90s, early noughties. And although I wouldn't have said it at the time, I was probably, you know, what would have been termed a ladette, you know, um, I thought feminism was one. Um, I it was fine, I can drink pints and, and go out. Um, and we then had the opposite of assertive vulnerability. We had a very assertive passivity. We were supposed to be invulnerable. We were supposed to be completely invulnerable, yet also completely passive. And when bad things happened to us, you know, in the community, I don't know how many um, women were, you know, assaulted and raped by men. Um, we were just supposed to shut up and put up because we were too hardcore to care. And because, it would upset people if we talked about what had happened to us. I feel that we fought hard to be able to talk about bad things that had happened to us yes. and make it about the people who'd done it, not about us. Exactly, and, and the pain- and we the get to, to our 40s and we're being told by younger people not to talk about it because it makes them feel bad. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, we need we need to really, we need to be honest about this. As uncomfortable as it is reading, about yeah. rape and other forms of abuse. It's a damn sight more uncomfortable experiencing it. Yeah, and to and not be able to talk about it. Exactly. Yeah. And and you're right about pointing the finger at the problem. And you, you mentioned earlier about how important it is to talk about the sex class of men, mm-hmm. which yeah. which is often, I think, willfully mm-hmm. twisted as though we're saying all men, all men are yes. monsters. And you know, let, let's not even let's not even go there. So it's a waste of time. Everyone, people know we're not saying that. They know this came up again in the same lecture actually, because we were talking about this and um, we talked about was it Jenny Jones, Baroness Jenny Jones, who her solution for um, ending male violence against women in the streets was to put a six o'clock curfew on all men. And, <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, well, it would it would solve it. And I, I brought this up in the in the lecture, and I did say this is a thought experiment, right? Nobody's yeah. really suggesting this. It is a thought experiment. So have a think about That's right. what the impact that would have if we, you know, if we made all men stay inside from six pm. <laughs> and you know, and I was really clear. I said about four times, we're not suggesting this actually happen. It's a thought experiment. And you know, the boys are in in the chat. 
and this is the other thing with it being on Zoom, where it's in a webinar, there's 400 students in there, and the twat, the twat, <laughs> well, exactly, the chat is like Twitter, and they're all tapping away in there with vitriol to each other, not really listening, and um, and they're saying, one of the questions that came up was, Kathy, why do you hate men? It's like, well, if people who think that when a woman says rape and murder is bad, anyone who thinks that that is about all men, it is, that's the problem. Feminists are not saying that it's inevitable that men behave like this. Feminists are holding men to much better, higher account, um, to much better standards and saying, actually, maybe just don't rape people. But this is, this is what we've been saying for a long time when we've critiqued all kind of you know men's rights activists and uh-huh. and this uh-huh. kind of ideology and i think that trans ideology is just part of men's rights activism that's all it uh-huh. is but but what what how have we got to this stage at universities is it because now the students see themselves as customers yeah um and i think especially so at the institution that i was working at so essentially it's a business and i know that all universities are businesses to some extent but this is a business it is run by venture capitalists um i don't think they turn students away um if they're willing to pay um, and so the more i found out about the way it worked the less comfortable i was working there and so the threat of bad publicity equals a threat of a loss of profit equals fear amongst the, the, the higher ups. Now that is not most of the staff. Most of the staff are musicians and people who've worked in events in the music industry who are like, oh, maybe a normal job would be nice, right? And they're in there, most of them are sound. Um, but it's the way that the, the business functions as a whole. And I, I, I do think that this is other universities as well, but I think that these private ones especially, and it gives students the feeling that they, it gives them the idea that they have got a right to decide what they're going to learn and that they don't come to university to have thoughts that they haven't already had. Um, which of course to me, and I'm sure to you is mind boggling because I think we're both the kind of people who want new thoughts and we want to challenge ourselves and we want to hear other people's points of view and find that really fascinating and want to read more and learn more. And, and so there is this, I don't, you know, I don't want to do this. I didn't come to university to read books. Um, but I also want to just really, I don't think I can stress strongly enough that this is not the case for the majority of students. Um, this is a, a small but vocal minority who really, really are resistant to having their own ideas challenged. I just found out two days ago that there's been like a petition and a campaign to get me back <laughs> and that most students are absolutely appalled at what's happened. Well, this is, this is music to my ears. Tell, tell us as much as you can about what the fallout was after that Zoom seminar, lecture, whatever you call it, and how it all um, reached a kind of boiling point. Yeah, well, it's interesting because after that particular one, complaints were made by a couple of students um, and the, the, the head of teaching and learning um, looked, he watched the Zoom you know, um, because I felt quite safe because, well, these are all recorded, right? Um, and he said, you've done nothing wrong. 
<laughs> it's fine, this is mad. Um, but there's loads of vitriol and, and anger against me um, for doing it from, again, I, this small section of the student body. I don't know how big this group is or how small it is. Um, I'm, I'm told that it's basically two students with a vendetta. Um, but again, I don't know this because they won't tell me. Um, and then the, that was um, in the academic year of, oh God, whatever, you know, the pandemic. Um, and the following academic year, um, we were back to teaching in person. I had a, an actual salary job. I was a deputy course leader um, with essentially the head of third year on this professional musicianship um, degree. Um, and in the December of my first year of having the, uh, the salaried role, um, I was called in for a meeting with the uh, college principal um, who wanted to talk about my perceived trans exclusionary views and mentioned a group of students who were, his words, out to get me. He advised that I locked down all my social media. I think it's worth noting as well that this is five or six days after the email he sent me saying, can we have a meeting? He invited me for this friendly chat where he said that they're out to get me and I'm, I'm in danger. Um, this is just before Christmas. I'm scared at this point. I, actually, like, you know, I'm scared. I don't know what this means. And he talked about, you know, so this group of students who were unhappy with something I said in that lecture. And also um, a, in, a, in the second day lecture, the year before, um, we'd done <laughs> one session on changing attitudes to race and racism between 1900 and 1975 with links to modern day. The following week, we'd done changes to changing attitudes to sex and sexism and the fight for women's rights between 1900 and 1975 with links to the present day about popular music and popular culture and entertainment. And at the end, because it's a lot to cover. And at the end imagine. Of, the, of the sort of the sex and women's rights, lecture I put up two slides of images one had pictures of blackface on um old um pictures of promotion for blackface entertainers um and then one with modern day drag performers you know and it just asked students to think about you know in light of what we've been talking about of the last two weeks have a think about why one of these is blanket unacceptable you know, and I do think that blackface should be unacceptable um, and why one is seen as more acceptable, you know. And I use the term woman face. Blackface is not okay. Why is woman face okay? Like, have a think about it. Fair question. Very fair about question. It in the seminars. And only one student was particularly interested in my seminars anyway. Um, and that was a trans student who said that they didn't like drag, that they found drag um, to be transphobic and appropriative of trans women's experiences. We had what I thought was quite an interesting chat about how a lot of feminists have a similar um, take on it. Um, I had a, a student of colour who has a trans sibling say that she found it really interesting looking at all of these things. So the groups who were, you know, who could have, who were interested in it were the groups who it was then claimed later that I was offending, which is interesting. Um, 
And I think that it could be seen as a racially insensitive thing to say, but that was not what was brought up. So what was brought up? Well, nothing was reported to me about it. But at this meeting, um, uh, it was brought up that I had said this a year before in a lecture. I was like, well, yeah, I did. (laughs) Um, And I think it's a completely valid thing to talk about. Um, And I, I hadn't... I didn't know what I thought about it at the time myself. I thought it was just a really interesting thing to think about. Um, I didn't want to be one of these boring feminists who didn't like drag. I wanted to be, you know, the fun kind. Um, and so I'd been trying to talk to people about it. Like, why is it okay? Tell me, tell me why it's okay. I want people to convince me. Nobody did. People just, I just got more into sort of, I went from an ambivalence to, I actually don't like it. In the staff room, somebody asked if we were going to go and see a drag show. I don't know if they were talking about like RuPaul on the telly or if they were going to go and see a, a, a drag show live or something. They asked me about it and I said, oh, God, no, I hate drag. I don't want to go. I think it's sexist. Um, and I've been trying to work out why it's OK and blackface isn't. Um, nobody really said anything. And then a month later, I had this meeting and that was apparently a staff member had complained about me then and this was deemed trans exclusionary which again is interesting because a lot of trans people think that drag is transphobic so oh my god and and this was kind of all presented to me it's like well I I didn't firstly I didn't know that any students had complained about it last year so and also I'm in a staff room you know the amount of things that people say they hate in the staff room you know I have a one of the colleagues has a hilarious rant about um how she hates stand-up comedy, right? And another of our staff is a stand-up comedian. He doesn't see that as a hate crime, right? <laughs> he actually right. thinks he's doing a bit of stand-up comedy. It's okay to dislike forms of entertainment. I think it's okay to dislike forms of entertainment. Um, I also think it's all right to say if you find something discriminatory. Um, but, th- yeah, this was all bundled up as, as ammunition against me. It's just down to basically one issue which is the allegations of transphobia against a lesbian against a feminist and I think this is really important for people to understand if you took I mean I'm 60 um, working class background and now I'm um, you know I'm a journalist and feminist campaigner you know you're kind of a not quite a generation younger than me but um, you grew up in a slightly in a different time and, and if you actually took our male counterparts, so the exact kind of background uh-huh. um, to us, but male, yeah. and they had come out with this stuff and explored these issues, oh. then they would have probably no to just a little bit of pushback against it. This And I was trying to talk to somebody, I was trying to talk to a black British man about this on a debate the other day. Um, And I was saying, look, if you take my male counterpart and he wrote the same things that I write and said the same things I do about trans ideology or whatever, he would get hardly any grief. And he just immediately hit back at me with, as a black man, I get loads and loads of grief. And I said, yes, because of racism. This is why I said my male counterpart and and I'm white. So therefore my male counterpart would be white. And this is what people don't understand. Lesbians get it way more than do others because we're a massive threat. And feminists, of course, get 
absolutely piled on when we say things about our own experiences. And if we can't talk about drag, who the hell can? This isn't a gay man's issue. People talk about this being part of gay male culture. No, this is absolutely 100% about women, misogyny and sexism. This is not a gay man's issue. Well, I think that it kind of drag is a place of gender that does belong to gay men, you know, in its way. And I'm not, in, I, d I think that by very definition, it is sexist, right? It is a member of the a more um, dominant sex class dressing up as members from a, a subordinate group and um, for, for comedy, for parody, for entertainment, right? And I think that by its very nature, it is sexist, right? But whether it is misogynistic or not is, I think, what is, um, interesting and open for debate and um, funnily enough after I said I hate it loads of people were like really interested in talking about it <laughs> you know yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that obviously it has its own history drag which is different from the history of blackface and and I think that boys and men dressing up in fancy clothes and makeup and and being fabulous crack on lads absolutely go for it have a great time uh, but it's whether that is performing femininity that is you know that is different um and you know historically gay men had been insulted by being called women you know um, mm -hmm. gay men had been called women as an insult and that hadn't happened to the blackface performers that's where it that's is different right. and so it comes from sort of reclaiming an insult. But the very fact that being called a woman is an insult. Yes, that's a clue. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, want, I want to talk to you um, now, if, if I can, about class, about social class, because, uh, you know, as far as I can see, um, and I've been campaigning against male violence for more than four decades, uh -huh. and it's, you know, different century same shit as far as I'm feeling now yeah. and and it's very very much this is about social class as well as as a sex class as uh, about oh, misogyny no. so so how have we got to a position where I mean I was I don't know if you know this story but I was almost very very close to being prevented bullied out of speaking at the Salford working class history library um, uh, about my about growing up a working class lesbian in the northeast of England so nothing to do with trans issues this was back in 2017 um, okay, no, I didn't know about this. right well the trans activists tried to actually get the funding for the library pulled they they oh, bullied the volunteers sad. for weeks and weeks and weeks the likes of Owen Jones refused to um to condemn it for a moment when you said it wasn't anything to do with trans ideology I thought you meant like even you being pulled from talking wasn't about it but obviously not well they, they would you know now it's not about what we say it's about who we are it's about certain individuals being yeah. publicly punished in order to, mm -hmm. to uh, send out a warning to other feminists not to get too shirty or rock the boat so so they tried to stop me from speaking about class and it was all of these blue fringed, pumped up, narcissistic, privileged, upper middle class idiots 
that have been fed this neoliberal line that they can be and do whatever they want because it's all about their own personal feelings. And this, to me, is what the movement is about. It's not a progressive movement. They may well say they're progressive, but these are the worst kind of cultural snobs, in my view, because what they do is they deny the material reality of billions of people who don't have an option to identify their way out of poverty, sexism, racism and the fucking rest of the I mean, and they talk about privilege, (laughs) you know. um, I... You know, Paul, coming back to what you were just saying about this neoliberal idea, I mean, I see um, gender ideology as neoliberalism writ large upon the human body. Um, This idea that if you don't like the class that you are in, I see it as akin to sort of the Blairite idea of social mobility. If you don't like the class you are in, you can just leave it um, rather than, you know, the older class politics and you know, trad feminism, which is making things better for everybody in that class and trying to remove the the barriers that are associated with being part of that class, whether that is, you know, being born working class or being um, born into a certain place or being born female or being born with a certain skin colour. It's making things better for everybody um, yes. within that and not just trying to opt out of it. Yes, which is why... In my view, and I think you agree, we have to locate feminism firmly on the left. We shouldn't ally with the right because they want to harm us. They want to remove all our rights. And we also need to think about the definition of feminism, which has to centre women and girls. But we have to, in my view, not look at the glass ceiling and the women who aren't earning a million pounds like them we have to look at the women at the very very bottom because if we don't bring those women with us in feminism feminism means nothing absolutely and and i think that a lot of um sort of middle class women um have been able to do really well financially because they outsource their female work to working class women right and this has been true for I don't know how long right you know oh I can go to work because I've got a nanny or I can you know not do the housework because I've got a cleaner um and I think that this happens and you know if we look at I mean obviously um all of your research on um the sex trade on prostitution it's it's women who are absolutely desperate who are in these situations um and it's often women um who were bearing the brunt in terms of domestic violence um of dissatisfied men in poverty as well looking up in terms of what you said about the glass ceiling and identifying out of oppression great yeah but it's it's pulling the ladder up behind you isn't it Um, isn't it just and and also i think the way that some women's rights campaigners they're not feminists to be fair, thankfully they don't adopt the term, who are populist right-wingers or just anti-feminist. And they're, you mentioned the, the you know, traditional women, this kind of pull to, to the return to biological determinism in the 1950s in response to the, yeah. the, the proliferation of pornography and the like. And I just think that's an abhorrence to think that, we've, that feminism's failed so completely that we have to go back to the 50s. Uh, as opposed to, you know, thinking about what real feminism is, which certainly isn't the liberal feminism. But these women, 
they'll they'll say this is a single issue this is about smashing gender ideology um uh-huh. and and stopping self id well they're important issues but to me they're only important because it's a part of male privilege in the way that male violence um is n- normalized so if if it's just about we don't like those trans freaks and therefore we've got to uh, return to a kind of real men and real women situation well i don't want to i don't want anything to do with that no I and mean, that's i think the opposite of where where we stand i'm sure we have some differences but that's kind of the opposite of where we stand i'm you know a gender abolitionist like let's right you know, males are real females are real but the the rules that we have associated with these sexes they can do one <laughs> You know, it's the rules that we want to get rid of, isn't it? And again, we're back to that idea of the difference between having a systemic or class analysis and talking about the the individuals, right? Um, Gender ideology is a symptom of this, of, of inequality, isn't it? It's not the cause. I think that within any um campaigning in any political movement, we do have people who have who are single issue, you know. Um, and I think that sometimes we just have to take it from as many angles as we can and we've got to keep talking about the class analysis and we've got to keep talking about the systemic problems um, as well. Totally. I couldn't believe it when there was the um, the issue was coming up about who would be the next Prime Minister in the leadership um, election. And and there were some women that were talking only about who's against self-ID, who knows what a woman is, who's dared in the Tory party to say, yes, I know what a woman is, and no, a man can't have a cervix. And that, you know, you should choose the next prime minister based on who's been the most forthright against self-ID. Well, yeah. no, I mean, I oh. tweeted, but there are other issues. And what I meant by that isn't that that's not an important issue. What I meant was you could then vote in a right winger who also wants to criminalise abortion, roll back lesbian and gay rights and vilify the most abused and oppressed women in our society. Mm-hmm. And yet they know what a real woman is. Well, some of those Tories know what a real woman is because they're very much into the 1950s biological essentialism. And there's no point knowing what a biological woman is if you also are against every single one of our rights. Yeah, and you know what they are and you have a class analysis and it is that women should be subservient. That is not cool. <laughs> That's right. No, no, absolutely. And... and um yeah, which is interested about, we were talking about this before, we like, you know, left and right wing people both have class analysis, but they have it, you know, they have, they think about it differently, you know. Um, in fact, I, I often get, like, often get accused of being left wing as well as being feminist, um, <laughs> which again isn't the disc people think it is. Um, but with my students, I would often, when we talk about Marxism, obviously there's lots of readings, Marxist readings that I'll be recommending and some about, you know, economic analysis and some about um, culture industry, etc. cetera. Um, but I also recommend that they listen to Michael Portillo's documentary on Radio 4 about capitalism, right? Because mm-hmm. he has the same analysis of capitalism as Karl Marx. Um, you know, capitalists and Marxists have the same analysis of capitalism. It's just that the, the conclusions are, one thinks and so capitalism is good and one thinks yeah. and so capitalism is bad i mean it's more complex than that as we know but you know i listen to 
Michael Portillo's documentary about capitalism that was on Radio 4. I was like, who is this Marxist that they're letting on the radio? <laughs> and, and, and isn't that interesting that actually we learn from those with whom we disagree Absolutely. and and we can we can talk and agree to disagree Yes. And it, it just it just sharpens our minds and our tools. But but to go, I, I want to sort of finish the the um, uh-huh. interview on on how we can turn this around. And in particular, I think you know what we can do to push back against all of these barriers in our way as feminists. Because as we've said throughout this chat, uh-huh. this is just about men's rights activism and a backlash against feminism, isn't it? That trans ideology is one tool which is being used to silence us. What, what about your case? What's happening with you now? And can we support you to do whatever you're trying to do to put this right? Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, please bring me back to this in a minute because I just also want to talk about um, the, the amount of girls, of young women who are, you know, identifying out of womanhood and I totally agree that this is still a kind of a, a um you know kind of men's rights etc but we are seeing a cohort of young women young lesbians proto-lesbians um who are rejecting womanhood completely and the the real thing that I wanted to point out about that is who can blame them <laughs> you know this links to what exactly with, with Gail Dines and with the, you, know, you can't blame young girls for sexualizing themselves when this is what they're told they have to do to be invisible. I don't blame girls who, are, um, who don't want to be women and want to opt out of that um, oppression because if, if you really believe that you can, why wouldn't you? I totally that- believe I'd have gone NB if I was a teenager now. Oh God, I would. I would yeah. without question have, have yeah. done that. I felt... Like I was a freak that I I was definitely, you know, I should have been a boy because, you know, I was attracted to girls and not attracted to boys and I was pretty messed up and there was quite a lot of of sexual and domestic violence within, you know, the kind of wider working class community in school that I attended. No one gave a shit about anyone. It was a bit like the Wild West. And, And so I saw all of that and the negativity about girlhood. And I absolutely, if I'd have been handed a solution, I would have opted out. Absolutely. And I just think that, you know, we shouldn't be, I don't think we should be placing the blame on the young people who are doing it. We should be looking at the adults who are facilitating it. Totally. And them get away with, you know, um, getting lecturers sacked. <laughs> well, and getting lecturers sacked, I mean, students, the students are, many of them are acting like spoiled brats and need to sort themselves out. But I blame the academic staff i blame the Absolutely. the management yeah, yeah. so what so what can we do to support you i have got a crowd justice um campaign i'm taking my employer to tribunal um i've just sort of reached the, the 30 days and the and the uh, target that i've set but it's going to cost more than that these things cost so much money it's uh, it's obscene um and it's very difficult i'm finding it difficult because i'm i am struggling to put food on the table right for my kids and then there's yeah. you know, 15 grand in the crowdfunder that it's not for me it's for solicitors <laughs> you know oh yeah i'm finding that hard um what i have been thinking about is um i think a lot of people are saying to me oh god i wish i could have been in your lectures they sound great um and so i think i'm going to start doing some online 
sessions about cultural theory and popular music because it's my jam. <laughs> um, Brilliant. And trying to go into that as a new income stream. Obviously, I'll be redoing them and reformatting them for a different audience. Um, but I'm quite excited about that. Um, so I'll be getting back to my sort of reading and um, and research and, and writing some, I, I don't like to say lectures, but, you know, talks and discussions on um, on various different things. Um, I am <laughs> actively looking for work <laughs> if anyone's right. got a job for me uh, because I'm broke. Yeah. yeah. And this is um, what people don't understand. You don't have a safety net. So many people don't have another option as an income that uh, they, they don't realise how hard these cases are. I'm in a private rented house. I'm, I mean, you know, I'm a university lecturer, but I'm not like a proper university lecturer who's from a dead posh background and has been, you know, through the mill. I, I, I came to education as a as a mature student, and I'm so lucky to have found this. But you know, we people at the institution I was working at are on roughly half the money they'd be on at a normal university, and that includes the admin and student support staff, which is outrageous. Um, and yeah, I'm in a private rented house. I could feasibly, I could be homeless in three months and have my kids taken off me. Well, we'll yeah. obviously, you know, we're we're um, we are a community. Feminism is a collective movement. You uh-huh. should never be. None of us should ever be on our own with this because they're doing it to you to warn the rest of us to shut up, and we won't. So whatever yeah. we can do, we will do that. Thank you. And this is why I want to fight it because it's not just about me. You know. Um, and the irony, of course, is they didn't want publicity. Um, they didn't want bad publicity, so they thought they could get rid of me. I've had to yes. go public in order to do the crowdfunder. I've had to talk about it. You know, I'm having to talk about it to, um, you know, I'm suddenly like got, I'm suddenly on Twitter and people are following me. I'm on in the bloody mail on Sunday and on GB News and talking to you. And it's like, well, what a dick move trying to bloody ask me to shut up because I'm not going to do it. Um, and it's just it's backfiring on the massive way. Well, in the in the tradition in the tradition of of, of active feminism, yeah. you know, women's tradition struggle, not submission. So, on that note, um, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been lovely. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you, Julie. It's been it's been great. Yeah. Thank you for listening. It's quite incredible, isn't it, that it was just a small number of the 400 students that complained about Cathy. And yet, they have such power. They effectively, in my view, and in Cathy's view, and in Cathy's lawyer's views, led her to lose her job. We've got to fight back against this whenever and however we can.